Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Biweekly Geopolitical Report for January 15, 2024. I'm Phil Adler. The war in Ukraine seems to have entered a new phase. Confluence Chief Market Strategist Patrick Farron Hernandez joins us today to discuss what investors might do to prepare for a range of possible outcomes. Patrick, first, could you describe this new phase of the war? Well, hi, Phil. Thanks for having me on the program. And to answer your question in a nutshell, I think it's fair to say that the conflict right now has devolved into at least a temporary stalemate. After Ukraine's offensive last summer proved unsuccessful, the front lines between the Ukrainians and the Russians have become mostly static, with trench works and anti-tank and anti-personnel minefields, tank traps and the like. And the front now runs statically pretty much from northeastern Ukraine to the Black Sea. Now, this doesn't mean that the stalemate would necessarily continue. Either side might gather the resources or figure out a way to generate some new momentum to go on the offensive again. But for right now, Russia's superiority in defense industry production and in the number of troops available seems basically in balance with Ukraine's forces and its ability to field some weapons systems and ammunition from the West. Patrick, one argument I hear against increasing U.S. aid to Ukraine is tied to spending and the increasing federal deficit. Could you give us some perspective? Exactly what is the current cost? Well, you're right. That's how the opposition to further aid has usually been described. But if you step back and look at the big picture, it doesn't seem to be such a big problem. From the beginning of the war until December, the U.S. provided a bit more than $75 billion in military, economic, and humanitarian aid to Ukraine, while the non-U.S. NATO countries have collectively provided somewhat more than that. The U.S. aid is equal to less than one-fifth of one percent of U.S. gross domestic product over that period, and less than three-quarters of one percent of total federal government spending over that same time frame. Now, the USAID to date is roughly equal to what the federal government spent on health research since February 2022, and it's quite a bit less than the government spent on disaster relief. Now, this all suggests that the resistance to further aid probably isn't really about the cost. There's probably something more going on here. Then what other arguments against increasing aid to Ukraine besides cost are gaining traction? Well, as we outline in our report, we think the resistance really comes more from political and strategic reasoning. On the political side, we think a lot of the resistance reflects populist isolationism of the kind that we've written about so often before. On the strategic side, some of the resistance also seems to reflect a sense by some observers that Russian President Putin might be satisfied if he were allowed to keep control over the nearly 20% of Ukraine that his forces now hold. From this perspective, the idea is that Russia's already been stopped from taking over Ukraine, so why not just freeze the conflict and focus on other things? Do you believe that without increased aid, the best Ukraine can hope for is a standoff and eventual settlement ceding to Russia land that it now controls? 
Yeah, I think that's a reasonable conclusion. As we've said before, the fighting most likely will end only when both sides exhaust themselves enough that they'll work together toward a negotiated settlement. Without continued aid, Ukraine probably can't push the Russians out of the territory they've already seized, so a total Ukrainian victory would seem unlikely. The U.S. has reportedly called on Ukraine to take some time to consolidate and build up its forces instead of throwing them at an entrenched enemy. Do you think that this might be an avenue toward victory? Well, recent reporting has shown that Washington couldn't convince Kiev to adjust its strategy and concentrate its forces ahead of its summer offensive. Would such a strategy have been successful? Well, we'll probably never know. As of right now, if Western aid really does dry up and get reduced, Kiev probably won't have the chance for another bite at the apple, at least not with the volumes of new equipment and resources that it had for its summer offensive. Personally, I'm I'm skeptical. The Institute for the Study of War is a public policy research organization that analyzes real-world military scenarios. It has reported on possible outcomes to the war in Ukraine, and, and you cite this group as an authentic source. What, according to this group, is the likelihood of outcomes other than the one we just mentioned? Well, the, the ISW does a nice job of summarizing the military scenarios in terms that civilians can understand. In their study, which we discuss in our report, they examine three potential scenarios. One, with a cutoff in Western aid, Ukraine gets totally overrun and conquered by the Russians. Two, the conflict is frozen via a negotiated settlement, leaving Russian forces in control of the territory they've already seized. And three, the Ukrainians are able to push the Russians totally out of their territory. But the most interesting finding of the study is that in all three of these scenarios, the Russian military would be able to recover and regroup much faster than people realize. In other words, President Putin would use any peace to rebuild his offensive military power and prepare for a new invasion in the future. So, to be clear, according to this group, Russian President Putin is unlikely to stop efforts to annex Ukraine and extend Russian borders, no matter what might be the short-term outcome of the current fighting. Yeah, that's exactly the point. The ISW is basically arguing that Putin won't give up threatening Ukraine and the rest of Eastern Europe. For the U.S. and NATO, it's just a question of how far Russian forces can be kept away from NATO's frontiers and for how long. To avert a new, more serious conflict in Europe, the farther away, the better. Now, just thinking in terms of expense, does it make more sense for the United States to increase aid to Ukraine now rather than incur even greater costs in the future? Well, that's the other main argument of this study. The ISW is arguing that the closer Russian forces are to NATO's borders at the end of the Ukraine conflict, the more emboldened they'll be, and the more expensive it'll be for the U.S. and NATO to build up a military deterrent force against them in Europe. And this is what I focused on in my report. I focused on what I call the physics. In other words, 
likely Russian action and NATO's reaction. I think the real message here is that Russia will remain a threat and perhaps an emboldened threat no matter what. And that's just going to further incentivize the West to pour more resources into defense, as we've been arguing for some time now. But do you think, Patrick, the fighting may have weakened Russia internally and diminished domestic support for Putin enough to impact at all the the country's expansionist goals? I don't think we're very optimistic about that. Putin and his regime have very tight control over the Russian people. So they've been able to minimize opposition to the war and, where it does exist, to put a lid on it quickly. There certainly seems to be some opposition to the war, especially in the big advanced cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg. But the legions of Russian citizens in the country's smaller cities and vast countryside are largely supportive of the war. Now that Putin's government has shifted the economy to a war footing and figured out how to keep raising troops without generating too much pushback, it looks like he would be able to sustain an aggressive posture for quite some time. Patrick, we're discussing today only one conflict in a world that seems to be full of them. Looking at the bigger picture for a moment, what is the danger of the U.S. being spread too thin? Yes, uh, you may remember that one theme of our geopolitical outlook for 2024 was the concept that the jungle grows back. In other words, as the U.S. began to pull back from its traditional role as global hegemon, authoritarian leaders in countries like China and Russia and Iran have taken advantage of the situation to assert themselves. It's happening all over the world, and it is indeed putting pressure on U.S. leaders, the, the U.S. foreign policy establishment establishment and the U.S. military to keep up with it all. But again, we suspect this will lead to a reaction of rebounding defense spending and renewed U.S. engagement in the world over time. Well, bottom lining it for investors, it seems to me that because of all these factors, increased military spending is our future, no matter how the Ukraine war turns out. Broadly speaking, are stocks of defense-related companies positioned right now for growth. Well, we think they are. And that includes European, Asian, and South Korean defense firms, as well as the big U.S. defense contractors. In 2023, the European defense firms performed especially well. In the U.S., defense stocks so far have performed more modestly, but we think that reflects issues such as topsy-turvy budget politics and idiosyncratic challenges here in the U.S. for particular firms. Over time, we do think U.S. defense firms will do well in this new environment. And since today's weapon systems are so dependent on information technology, we also see good prospects for industrial services and technology companies that happen to have a lot of defense business. Is there a sector of the defense industry that seems most promising for investors right now? Yeah, I think the European defense firms still have the better upside right now, and that would be especially the case if the dollar continues to weaken. In the U.S., the more technology-oriented defense firms or industrial firms that serve defense companies, they're the ones that look best uh, here in the U.S. at the moment. 
Thank you, Patrick. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. Also, this information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our audio engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.